Hello, welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. On April 7th, 2018, almost exactly two years ago, Jamie and Ben Gifford, with their three children, completed a circumnavigation that they had begun a decade before. The kids were four, six, and nine when they started, leaving Seattle and heading south towards Mexico, across the Pacific and onward. Now their oldest has left for college. Now, I recorded this interview with the Giffords before the coronavirus had changed lives and plans for everyone. And when I spoke with Jamie and Ben, they were planning on heading west from Mexico in early April. But instead of provisioning for a passage, they ended up provisioning for a pandemic. And they're now sheltered in place in the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. Actually, last week, Ben wrote a powerful blog on their site, sailingtotem.com. It's titled, The South Pacific is Closed, and it detailed their difficult decision not to make the crossing, and more importantly outlined why it was the only really responsible decision to make. Because if there are those out there now thinking it might still be possible to go cruising as usual, think again. But this interview is mostly an escape from all that. It covers the Giffords' travels over the past 12 years, and I found the conversation informative, inspirational, and a lot of fun. I hope you do too. Uh, my name is Bean Gifford. I'm sitting here rocking gently on uh, Totem, the boat that I own with my husband Jamie. And we are in La Cruz de Guanacaste, Mexico, which is in Banderas Bay near Puerto Vallarta. Wonderful. I'm Jamie Gifford, and all the rest applies to me as well. <laughs> and you two are not the only residents on the boat. No, our daughters are here next to us. They're in the galley. Pardon any extra noise. They're cooking dinner. Um, our son uh, circumnavigated with us. He's off the boat now in college, but just had him back for about a month. That's wonderful. So you mentioned that you've circumnavigated. Um, let's Let's back up to how that dream of sailing together as a family and circumnavigating began. So I married the dream. I married into the dream. I think is the best way to describe that. Am I dreamy? <laughs> you are dreamy. Uh, Jamie, dreamy Jamie. I, I, yeah, I don't get that often. So, you know, no, I, I, um, I grew up sailing in Connecticut from, from a, a young age and, and sailing was, was what I loved. And I was given a book by my parents when I was 11 that inspired me to want to do more of that, uh, Dove by Robin Lee Graham. And uh, I wanted to cruise and sail around the world and, and became a sailmaker after that. And, and then Bian and I met in Connecticut when she was at, at Con College. It sort of went from there. I have to comment on you being inspired by Dove because I think there are at least four people so far on the podcast who've mentioned the book and said what an influence it had on them. And I know personally for me it did as well. I wanted to ask you what it was about that book that sowed so many dreams. You know, I, I read it. I was at 11 years old. I got it for Christmas. And a week later, later after I had finished it 12 times, 
it was the sense of freedom and that you can see the world and experience culture and and that kind of that wanderlust that some people have that that sparked it for me and that you could do it in a sailboat and I already loved sailing um, that was like the magic carpet Ben you mentioned that you married into this dream was it mm-hmm. one that you quickly shared what was your introduction to it so jamie gave me a copy of dove to read when we've been dating for just a few weeks so um i could read it and understand him um and um didn't everybody do that i but that was a very receptive audience because i actually had childhood roots sailing uh we did not sail much as a family when i was growing up because my mother looks at the dock and gets seasick she loves the yacht club the yacht club is great the sailing part, she's not so into. Um, but my dad loved sailing, and he raced a Pacific Inner Club out of the St. Francis Yacht Club. Uh, he was season's champion one year even, you know, picture on the menu. And my love of sailing really started with him. And I have very, I have a, a childhood memory, I'm probably three years old, of being out on his boat before my mom basically made him sell it. <laughs> I think about the times that sailing came into my life periodically, and they, they go back to my dad um, through my childhood. By the time I was in college, I joined the sailing team. And I think it's fair to say I screened boyfriends for interest in sailing. Uh, <laughs> I met Jamie going out on a J-35 in Fisher's Island Sound in Connecticut. And then he was the one who introduced me to the concept of cruising, which just, I, it's odd that I'd never really even thought of that as a possibility because what I had was incurable wanderlust. I really love sailing, but I'd finished high school in Taiwan and all I wanted to do was travel. Jamie showed me that traveling and sailing went together in this thing called cruising, and then he had me read Dove, and that was it. At that point, this was always going to be something in our future. I want to get to the cruising, but first I want to mine your memory a little bit of sailing on San Francisco Bay as a kid. You know, when I think about it, it's I, I truly was probably about three years old, so it's very fuzzy, and what it has to do with is special time with my dad, mm. something I didn't have. Uh, a lot of his time, I think, and uh, between, you know, job and busy home and things like that. And knowing that it was important to him, you know, we want to please our parents. Um, I wanted, uh, as I was older, to to like something that I knew was really special to him and that he'd had to give up because of my mom. Mm. And sailing kind of crept in in other little ways, but but he's kind of that, that main theme there. When I had the chance to get on boats, I got on boats uh, enough that I was able to, to do it at a collegiate level. You know, the picture of his boat racing on the bay, crossing tacks with another boat, you know, that was on the wall in the dining room. The stories he would tell about, you know, racing when he was little. My, my parents even had a blind date on, on his boat in San Francisco Bay. That was how they met. That was, I, that was probably the last time she went sailing. <laughs> wow. Well, San Francisco Bay can can turn people off to sailing pretty quick. It can be cold and miserable out there. But, yes, it can. Uh, Truthfully, I hear foggy as well. Just occasionally, yes, yeah. So the two of you met on the East Coast. What was next? What what was the, there were some steps between that and and heading off. There were a bunch of steps, most of which involved actually uh, getting burned out on sailing and stopping for a while. Hmm. Yeah, at the time, I was a professional sailor, uh, racing sailor and sailmaker, and uh, and I got burnt out. I was I was pretty young, and involved in some uh, some big professional racing campaigns that were amazing and fun experiences. But um, 
but I didn't get the politics behind the sailing and I didn't do it very well. And so I, I wanted to step out. So Ben and I are cemented our relationship, moved out to the West coast in Seattle and, and, um, shifted our priorities for a while to, um, you know, to, to, to having careers and to, uh, having a first house and the kind of things that are common and typical. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that came around again because I just, my wanderlust never went away. And the vehicle for realizing that the obvious vehicle was, was being on a boat. And there was a time when I was, I was on maternity leave and I remember it really vividly. Um, and you know, I was reading Slocum, <laughs> which is probably after Dove, the other one people might invoke to you. I was reading Slocum while, you know, you know, between bouts of nursing and thinking about the incredible world that he was able to explore and and feeling a little overwhelmed, I think, by how busy our lives had become as professionals and how much this dream that we'd had, I wish we could bring back into the future. And and so we made a plan. Well, hold, hold on. Even before the plan, the idea of cruising whether it was someday or sooner, mm-hmm. was kept alive mm-hmm. in vivid color because of who our cruising mentors were. This is true. And they're San Francisco denizens. Oh, legendary of, yeah. San Francisco, really. So I was backpacking in Europe in 1989, and on the Dalmatian coast of Yugoslavia and Dubrovnik, there was a boat with San Francisco on the transom. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Hey, San Francisco. And they said, Hey, come aboard and, you know, and have a beverage. And, and I got to know Jim and Diana Jesse there really well. Mm. And they were my people. And they said, we'll be in knowing Connecticut where I was living at the time in two years. We'll look you up. I said, great. Not really believing it. Two years later, they showed up in knowing Connecticut and they were amazing. And when we moved to Seattle, they came through Seattle on their boat in Alu 4, mm-hmm. and we did them sailing there. Uh, before that, they were in, in uh, Sea Cortez, and Beat and I did a trip down on their boat in Sea Cortez for a bit, our first experience there. In the, that was my real introduction to cruising, yeah. Mid 90s, Bay of LA. And it made it real. And, and through their experience, it was like they kept it, it actively alive, and we want to do this. And then it was these other events that triggered the notion that it didn't have to be when we were 65 years old. It could be sooner. So tell me about that, the plan, making a plan and then sticking to a plan. I mean, that's often one of the hardest parts when people feel stuck in it their really routine. Is. Well, and we started our plan by hiring a lawyer, an accountant, and a marriage counselor. <laughs> no, no, <I'm> <laughs> Um, yeah, making the plan and keeping it, it's tough. And we started with, we told ourselves we were going to have a five-year plan. And the five-year plan turned into a six-year plan because we had a surprise third child. Best surprise ever. Also cooking a fabulous eggplant parmesan right now. But I think having a boundary on it, having a date, which was something our mentors, something Jim and Diana encouraged us to do, really helped us because it forced us to think about the decision point and that timeline. Okay, it's four years now. Now, now it's three and a half. What are we doing to move ourselves closer to that? It it gave us a filter to have a real date because you know why spend you know however thousands of dollars on a schmancy sectional for the living room 
if we're going to be buying a boat and taking off and going cruising. Like it doesn't make these things don't make sense. So it gave us a whole new way of looking at our everyday life in ways that helped us keep the dream alive. We also um, made a couple of immediate major decisions, like literally after deciding that this was the five year plan we were going to do. We called our realtor and made a plan to sell our house in Seattle and buy a house that was going to be uh, in line with the plan. And that major move reset us in a lot of ways. So when it was time to push the plane out a year, it didn't matter. It was just pushing it out a year. It wasn't uh, moving away from it. We had dramatically changed our lives to to get on the timeline to departing to go cruising. Where did the boat come into it? Because I know you found the boat here in Alameda. Where yep. in that five-year plan did the boat enter the picture? Yeah, so we, we actually found the boat at first in Hawaii, and it got sailed back to uh, to Alameda because turns out boats don't sell very well in Hawaii. There's a barrier with the plane ticket. And the seller finally realized that, and he lived in the Bay Area, so he brought it back. We actually started by buying an, uh, a Hallberg Rossing 352, so 35-ish feet, that we could do Puget Sound cruising with our kids. Um, brought babies home to the boat, and we do a thousand miles a year in weekend gun calling and uh, holiday cruising. Um, and that helped uh, boating, boating in a in a way that had the shape and form and flavor of blue water cruising become a part of our like lives as a family. Yeah, right. All of it, like the good, the bad. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how important getting used to those pump toilets are. I've had right. <laughs> It's a big thing. Um, but we, we had the boat for a while, and we thought about going cruising on that boat, fine boat. But third child comes, and, and the boat was not the right fit for us anymore. So we, we knew that, uh, listed the boat, and, um, and then started looking. And when this boat came up, now named Totem, before it was called Don't Look Back, um, in Hawaii, wasn't right. Came into San Francisco. We actually looked at a bunch of boats in San Francisco with Jim Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a couple of, of different Stevens 47s that we thought might work and didn't work. What year was it that you came across What what's now totaled? 2006, we first uh, uh, saw her. And 2007, when she came into uh, San Francisco and made the transaction, and, and she was ours. And then, and then of course... We were living in Seattle, and and um, and so um, San Francisco, as the place where the boat was, was inconvenient. So it was a matter of getting getting her up the coast. And that and, took a couple tries because weather in the spring going up the coast. Yeah, it can be lively. Yeah, you're going we, uh, you're going the wrong direction against the currents and the wind there. Talk about exactly, that trip. Exactly, and 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 people will um, you know ship a boat over land, or they talk about sail to Hawaii and then up and over. Um, and, and they're viable for sure. But I, um, I got a crew of some guy being was stuck working, unfortunately, but I got um, some, some friends and we went down to the boat in April, 2007 and we were going to sail up. We had a nice weather window. A gale had blown through and the backside of it was, uh, pretty easy conditions. And, uh, and so we're going to do that. Friends wanted some offshore experience and uh, came down, got the boat ready, took off, off we go. We got through the gate and it was foggy and, and drizzly and light air. Got out by the Farallons and um, we're all starting to settle on to this is a big passage. And 
then uh, I came down to below. I was going to cook quesadillas for the crew. <laughs> Everybody fed well is important. And um, all of a sudden, we started healing over quite a bit more. And and um, and then we really laid over, and nobody said anything from up in the cockpit. And I said, um, guys, what's going on? Do we need to reef or what's the deal? And they still didn't say anything. And I think um, uh, the, the rapid change had everybody a little bit freaked out. So I hopped up. It was, it was quite different. The uh, NOAA weather and the radio was staying, you know, somewhere between a vacuum and five knots of wind. And, um, and we, went, more. we went in probably 15 or 20 minutes up to 40 gusting 45s and, uh, and a quickly building sea state. Wow. So, and, and this would be a dynamic you're really familiar with as a Bay Area sailor of how quickly things can change. Yes, yes. And this isn't a boat that you are not yet super familiar with. That's right. Now, a, a boat that had just um, done a five-year lap of the Pacific, and so in one sense, it's tough. And in another sense, I had spent a number of hours on the boat and not more than that. And so what's going to happen and what, what might break and what do we still have to learn? And, um, so, uh, one of, one of the crew got badly seasick, uh, really badly seasick. Another member was a, was a doctor and he was, he was ready to go. He's like, just, just let me know. And I'll, you know, we'll give him an enema or whatever because he's totally dehydrated. Right. No, I faced that. Suppositories. Yeah, you got to get liquid in somehow. Yeah. And what happened is the gale that had blown through stalled and then kind of drifted back. And and I said to the crew, I said, we're going to keep going to the point where we get where we can still turn around and make it back into the San Francisco Bay before dark. At that point, we're going to decide if we carry on or not. And if it's like this now or worse then we're going back. And we got to that point. It was still honking. The sea state was much bigger. And so we turned around. And uh, we had a screaming fast trip back through over Potato Patch and into the bay. And as soon as we came onto the bridge, conditions changed. The really badly sick uh, crew member, most people on the boat were at least a little seasick. But the badly seasick guy all came out of their their misery bubble and um and then we got back tied up the boat, <laughs> went to the bar had a beer and um and there was a little bit of resentment because they were tough guys that wanted an offshore experience and they thought maybe i i, I copped out a little bit too soon yeah, and we had to pay off for all those plane tickets and <laughs> yeah it was all it was our financial amount but none of that really mattered it was what was the right thing to do yeah. safety wise the next day, the next day, the, the gale did not go away. The next day, it blew 65 knots. And so, um, to me, it was an important lesson that, A, I made the right call, which is awesome because nobody's perfect, but that going back and turning around is never the wrong thing to do. If you feel like it's not right, something's, something's not working, your gut feeling, whatever it is, then go back. And um, and uh, it's it's a safer um thing to do yeah that is such an important lesson to remember don't let the get there itis take over and just push ahead because that's, that's your right plan. and the mantra 
poncho and the bravado and stuff. That's awesome, but you know, it doesn't uh, supersede comfort and and safety concerns. Yeah. So your next time out the gate was a a, a little easier, I presume. You know, it took it took uh, almost two months more to get out the gate again, and and the big crew of uh, five other guys and I had shrunken down because. Mm-hmm. Hard to get time off work. You just had three, right? Yeah, it was two other guys and you myself. And, Curtis, yeah. and um and we left the gate and it was it was not as mild going out, which was nice. And um but it was not an easy forecast. And so wind forward of the beam, twenties, twenty fives, pretty pretty often. It was pretty wet. And um and past the fair lines, past the point where we turned around before and some boarding waves and stuff and at one point a wave came and it just smashed into the dodger and the dodger blew out and it was because the boat had spent the last five years in the south pacific and the stitching was rotten on it Mm. and so it's like oh man and it was cold water and it was cold (laughs) and vulnerable um but it wasn't turnaround conditions it was still okay so we uh we carried on and we did our hop. We got to Crescent City a couple of days later, and then uh, and then moved on from there. Now that you've done a circumnavigation, seen many many ocean passages in this boat, how does this weather compare to others you've seen out there? Oh, it certainly is as lively as any that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Big weather is not such a blank statement, though. You can have you know, uh, lots of wind in one situation that is lively and in a different one, it's the big sea state or the steep waves or whatever. There's, there's a different shape to the big weather, but, but this experience coming out of San Francisco, uh, both of them, and then the trip north, they're, they're equal to just about any, anything we've had going all the way around. It brings up an interesting question in my mind, which is, uh, you set sail with three children. What what were their ages when you when you set sail from Seattle? Actually, we left with six. We sold three of them along the way. <laughs> so we moved aboard. We moved, We have a birthday season. All three kids have their birthdays in a two week span. I swear, completely unplanned. Wow. Um, Not the same we year. Yeah, <laughs> separate holidays in August now. Um, so we moved aboard when they were. They had freshly turned ages four, six, and nine. Okay. Um, and they are now halfway through, or most of the way through, 15, 17, and 20. And how do you think about risk and sailing differently with children on board than without? Well, I think it, I think it affects everything. Um, I think that, you know, being concerned about their health and safety and comfort, they're definitely... Um, it's like a filter over every little decision, but the biggest one is probably route planning and the places we choose to go and not go, um, where we're probably a lot more cautious about security than we might be otherwise. But even that, I'm not sure. I actually think kids are a great excuse to, um, to act safer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's with, with children on board, we want to be, extra cautious we want to make these good decisions and we try really hard at it but uh, i grew up sailing and racing on a lot of different boats um 
of all sizes up to maxi boats and all that. And I know what it's like on those boats where everything is super hardcore. You push everything to the extreme. And with cruising, we don't need to do that. That's a choice. And so I actually think that even though the kids may help slant us towards safer, more cautious decisions, having my past experience in in racing context, uh, I I like more comfortable setting. I, I like um, not bashing around. And and I, I think the big difference is that maybe with um, with uh, kids, we, we research, we plan a little bit better so that we know what a place is like or what the risks are. Since we're talking about kids, I have to mention that, Ben, you um, co-authored a book called Voyaging with Kids, a guide to mm-hmm. family life afloat. And personally, I found it uh, an amazing resource. So if anybody else out there is listening and, and has kids and is sailing on the bay with them or thinking about cruising with them, it's it's very helpful. Was that an interesting experience to write that book? Oh, it was it was a great experience. It was a ton of work. It, it was, was a, a terrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's hard, it was harder on Jamie than it was on me. Um, I have two really wonderful co-authors, uh, Sarah Johnson and Michael Robertson. Uh, Sarah Don Johnson and Michael uh, Robertson actually knew each other as cruising boats, cruising families in Mexico. Um, I didn't meet Michael until a year after, no, two years after our book was published, and I've still never met Sarah in person. We did everything with Skype and Dropbox. Wow. Um, but we knew each other through our writing, and that can be really powerful. Um, and we went from knowing each other through our writing to knowing, knowing each other as um, co-authors and finding a vibe to, to work on producing this together. And we all had the same passion, which is help families get out there this life is incredible and it needs to be, it needs to feel plainer and more approachable. And how can we do that in a book that isn't a single story because the existing literature of family cruising tended to be, here's what this family went and did instead of, we literally had uh, hundreds of families included in different parts of the research for our book. One of the things that you guys do to share your story with others is, is blog about it. When you started that really wasn't so much of a thing, people putting up on YouTube their stories or Instagramming each other. How has that changed in your time? Yeah, Instagram, I don't think existed when we left. YouTube was there, but it was a very different beast than it is now. It was entirely different. Blogging, I think, um, for me, was a, a vehicle for expression and initially really for sharing things with families and, um, and with our family. And it became more important because I realized it was helping people and that helped fuel the book as well, because it was essentially other families hungry for the information that I was hungry for uh, with the right filter. It's it's certainly changed a ton. And I think largely it's changed for the good in the sense that it makes cruising feel more accessible and it makes people explore it. And if that is the major outcome, that's great. So you mentioned that Totem is a Stevens 47 and we talked about finding her. What was it and what is it uh, about Totem as a boat that made it the appropriate boat for you and your family? It's a fine question. What we've learned after we got Totem down the road that the, the boats that people choose to go cruising in 
are very much influenced by the region that they come from mm. and the sailing background that they have. And so it's pretty predictable to get to a destination and you can look at a boat and say, that boat is from Puget Sound or that boat is from the East Coast or, or Europe or whatever because um, this regional influence. And so when we were first looking for our cruising boat, we were looking for, uh, in part, boats that were pretty Puget Sound, blue water ready offshore boats. And it was our, our, our San Francisco mentor, Jim Jesse, who had a one and a half circumnavigations and had been a surveyor since the dawn of time. He was like, nah, you want a boat that's got um, performance enough, tougher than you are, performance enough, and some other things. And, and that that tweaked what we started looking at. And so we kind of, kind of opened up to... We dialed away from the Hans Christians a bit, yeah, which we had been getting on. Cer- certain styles of boats we, we pushed away from. And, and so with that knowledge, we, we settled on, on Totem, uh, on this design, and... And then kind of honed in on it to the point where we looked at several and, and mm-hmm. settled on this one. What we liked about the design, um, Jamie will talk about the sailing characteristics a bit. But in terms of the layout, one of the challenges for us as a family of five was finding one that would accommodate us through the kids in uh, teenage years. We knew it would be really important for them to have private space. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty hard to do. We were not going to be able to afford a catamaran or a four cabin mono. So we needed a three cabin mono. And what the Stevens 47 does very nicely is provide three cabins and the allocation of space that meant our teenagers could have that um, personal space into into the years that that was important for them. Hmm. So you set off from Seattle in 2008. And I'm looking here at your website at a very impressive map of your track. Give listeners a, a brief overview of of your yeah. track over the past um, what t- uh, almost twelve years. years. Yeah. So uh, Seattle down the west coast to Mexico. Mexico is an awesome Pacific Mexico, terrific cruising area. Sea Cortez is spectacular. We spent about a year and a half in Mexico, learning how to be cruisers, mm-hmm. learning how to live in places where. Sometimes you're pretty off-grid and um, need to really rely on your own um, resources. And in 2010, we left Mexico crossing the Pacific. We did a one-year Pacific crossing with mostly the the common islands that people going that way get to. French Poly, Cooks, Tonga, Fiji, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, and Australia. But partway across, we realized that we're actually quite poor and running out of money quickly. And, uh, and so we, um, after some uh, checking and figuring out, we ended up in Australia for a while to, to make money. We I was w- doing Skype interviews from the Tahiti Yacht Club Wi-Fi, you know, out in the mooring ball. And, uh, yeah, well, we literally sat down with the chart of the Pacific to say, okay, where can we sail to by the end of the season where we can legally work? probably um that doesn't mean going home and, so, uh, and sydney won in terms of a good opportunity yeah and that brings up and, an interesting question i know we're, we're gonna we're gonna break the circumnavigation here for a minute but talk a little bit about 
how financially you support yourselves and make this work? Because I think that's a question that's often top of people's mind. Well, yeah. we, we mentioned the other children. <laughs> the ones we sold, right? <laughs> oh, the ones you sold to finance the trip. That's a great way to yeah. do it. So, honestly, it evolved over time because we didn't expect to be out this long. We thought we were going for a two- to five-year sabbatical, and we built savings based on that. And what happened was a couple of things. First, we weren't able to sell our house because uh, global financial crisis, 2008, oh, real right. estate yes. crash. It sound. So, you know, so we had a different level of savings available because we kept our date. We didn't use that as a reason to push our date out. And what that meant was... Skype interviews from the TD Yacht Club, you know, looking for jobs because two and a half years in, nobody wanted to stop. That was the better choice. So we ended up in Australia resupplying the cruising kitty and having a, a fine Aussie experience. Um, but we also realized at the time that living with one foot on the boat and one foot on land, we lived on the boat, but work was on land, was difficult. It was really hard. And we didn't want to do that again. So we thought we got to figure out a way to um, to make living off of the boat. And so having been a sailmaker, uh, I found opportunity in connecting with people where we were building sails offshore. So when we meet cruisers and if they need sails, I, I can, I can uh, meet needs for, for sailmaking there and providing really good offshore sails. Mm. Um, we also... Um, did more writing. Uh, we, we write for a magazine back in Seattle. We've been writing for for a long time, 48 North. Mm -hmm. But that, that bloomed a little bit more, and mostly with Bian's writing uh, the blog and that becoming syndicated, and, and then some magazine articles as well. And that was a nice contributor. And then skipping ahead a little bit, um, while we're cruising because we've stepped off and we've made it work and it's, it's, uh, it's not because we were perfect or whatever. It's that we, we, we did it. We get a lot of questions from people and say, how can we do that? How can I live in a boat and not kill my partner because we're next to each other 24 hours a day? Mm -hmm. And, and with our experience, um, we could reply and say, well, we have some answers. And so after a while we said, we're spending a lot of time working um, to help people go cruising. So why don't we make that a formal thing and actually uh, charge a little bit, not much. And so we've got a coaching service to help people go cruising. And, um, and it's a blast. And honestly, to meet people and see excitement, enthusiasm, preparing to go, whether it's six months, two years, or, or you know, five years away and for whatever duration, to help people get out there and go. And, um, and a lot of our people are out right now. We've got two families that are nearing circumnavigations that we've worked with. And, uh, it's, it's awesome fun. That must feel so gratifying. It, it is an incredible feeling. It does. We're literally, we're almost 200 families that we've worked with families and couples in the last, what, three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Uh, wow. and so we've got, people all over the place and, and they're all across the board i mean we're working with people who are buying boats that were are cost twenty thousand dollars and we're working with people who are buying boats that cost over two million dollars because there is no one size fits all with cruising and everybody who gets out there the world is a better place happier for them happier for the people around us i i also think with it it it's not about 
us. It's about what their goal is. And, and in that kind of philosophy about what we do, um, we've had this community that came together with the people that we've worked with that um, they connect and they meet. And so now people that we've done coaching for in a way become um, inspiration and mentors for new coaching clients. And then they connect Mm -hmm. and they help each other because they're at different stages in, in a way that is different than the internet where everybody is nine feet tall and angry and, um, and can be (laughs) nasty if you want to go cruising and say, well, I've got a hunter and I want to go cruising and, and the responses you get from that sort of thing. When in reality, well, what's the context for that? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What is your, you know, what is your intention? Should we tell the story of the single hander on the hunter that we've seen in uh, what, Sri Lanka and then Seychelles and then Cape Town, South Africa? Yeah, the guy circumnavigated in that Fantastic. boat. And, and, and there are pros and cons to every boat. Sure. I mean, so it's not to, to sound naive about boats because we know a little bit about them, but um, it's that. But a little um, bit of knowledge science. is a dangerous thing. I mean, I, uh, I can be right. a snob about uh, which boats should be out there and which boats shouldn't myself. And it's great and, to and hear I that people are doing that. Because we've, we've been there too. Yeah, and, and, and what we've learned is that, um, and believe, truly believe, it's more about the sailor than the boat. The boat mm. needs to be capable enough, but you're, you as the sailor and the skills that you have are the difference in the choices that you make. And that is what's going to, to, to be the bigger part of staying safe and having a great cruising experience. Well, you guys have almost a mu- enough boats now that you've uh, mentored to have a rally together. <laughs> so we've had a couple of meetups. And actually, one of the things that's so, so cool is when the, the people who've worked with us get together somewhere and send us a picture. There was a group of probably 15 that sent us a picture from the beach in um, Barbuda. We had a sunset sundowners up on the Malacan here in La Cruz a few weeks ago, and that was probably more like 20 people. Money, and and we... they, they've given themselves a name. They call themselves the True Crew because we have this Facebook group we call the Totem Wrapped Up, and they took the TRU acronym and made it True Crew. Like, it is really, really cool, actually, to have this sort of this supportive, filtered group of dedicated, gone-to-go cruisers. That, that then... Um help each other and make connections and and in a way that's that's more positive than sometimes the internet can be that's fabulous but i want to get back to the journey because the next part really fascinates me because you left australia and you went north it looks like through indonesia so we actually went first to Papua New Guinea, which is an incredible destination that is sort of slightly off people's radars. It, it doesn't have a very good reputation for security. It has earned the bad reputation for mm-hmm. security issues. Um, but there are ways to travel safely. Like no country should be painted with one brush. And so we got informed on the way to go there. No, because No, no. Bian did research <laughs> and became informed became knowledgeable through the research, which is a great cruising lesson. So I actually think it's it's maybe good to spend a slightly disproportionate amount of time talking about Papua New Guinea, because security is one of the things that people really worry about. How do you stay safe is probably one of our most frequent questions um, that we get from people who want to go cruising. And with PNG, 
people in Australia talk about PNG the way a lot of people in um, the U.S. and Canada talk about Mexico. It's this dangerous place. It has, you know, bands or cartels or whatever that are going to kill you if you show up and terrible things are going to happen if you go there. And, well, you know, walk around Cabo at two o'clock in the morning, totally drunk on tequila. And you know what? Yeah, bad stuff's probably going to happen. Um, get involved in cartel activity in Mexico and bad stuff's going to happen. He's like... There's there's a really big don't be dumb rule to apply, and the catch is sort of knowing that plus the dynamics of a particular place. So in PNG, we learned what those dynamics were, and then we're able to have an incredible three months cruising through really spectacular islands that don't get many visitors. Mm. And that's true for anywhere in the world, right? I really think it is. Um, you know, when whenever you hear uh, something painted with that single brush, whether it's health or security or whatever, you you sort of know to look for the exceptions because nothing's that simple. Yeah, yeah and the idea of do do research if you want to go out cruising, get over the the single brush view of a country, and figure out the subtleties. Maybe just part of it is that way, and um, really the worst places where there's piracy, uh, known piracy. Those are deliberate choices to go there. It's easy information to find. And um, you could be you could be in a place and have a random event happen that's not predictable. That could happen in San Francisco. It can happen anywhere. But where piracy, where those deliberate things happen, it's a choice to be there. It's easy to choose not to be there. Yeah. And so you chose to head west, not go up through the Red Sea, but... I see it looks like you hit Madagascar before then heading down to South Africa. Yeah, and that was a security choice, really, um, that we did not feel that that northwest quadrant of the Indian Ocean was a, a good place for us to go too close to Somalia. South Africa is plenty dangerous um, as a country and in terms of what's offshore, but it was much more predictable. It was easier, easier to plan a safe route. Mm-hmm. And then 2016 saw you back in the Atlantic hitting Brazil. And then the Caribbean. That was a really big year. Between February and June, we sailed um, over 9,000 miles. And that was from the, the time we left Cape Town until we arrived in Connecticut. And it didn't feel like a rush at the time. We did spend a lot of time on passages. Um, but we basically, we, we met up with Jamie's aunt and uncle who have been um, uh, expats or, I mean, they're re- residents in South Africa now for decades. And learning about some health complications with his family in Rhode Island, we felt like it was time to go home for a little bit and Mm -hmm. and visit them. So instead of our initial plan, which had been bounced from the Caribbean to the Mediterranean, uh, we kind of hightailed it to New England and spent the summer hanging out in uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island. It must have been nice to to be home and see some family. How do you stay connected with that family when you're out? Oh, technology is amazing. I mean, it, it, we're so fortunate. Even when we started 12 years ago and, and where it is today, the the options that we have available for staying in touch are phenomenal. I mean, that I could have a, um, a crystal clear and affordable, thank you, internet phone call with my father, you know, five minutes before we started talking to you, um, that I could have a video chat with my son about an hour before that, um, that we're able to use these, you know, video chat technologies and we can send email from the middle of the ocean. Like our, our ability to stay in touch is remarkable. Um, we particularly like using um, Zoom and WhatsApp 
Uh, Skype is always handy because you can call uh, numbers with it pretty easily. And we're just you know, kind of grateful, I guess. But I feel like staying in touch, it's never quite the same when you're not physically present, but it's remarkable what we're able to do. Yeah, so I wanted to ask about the flip side, about what, what have been the harder parts of, of being away from, from family and being in one place? No delivery pizza. <laughs> it's very unfortunate when you just can't make a simple phone call. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you could hear that. Those the, the teen camp saying they agree. They they would like delivery pizza too. <laughs> um, of course, it's hard to be away from family and friends, and and um, it, it's it's uh, it's difficult when when you want to go back and. One of the big things when you cross the Pacific Ocean is you you left knowing you're crossing the ocean, and then you arrive on the other side, realizing for the first time how far away from home you are, mm. and it's at that point you're 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 committed. You're, you there's no easy going back with the boat. You can fly back, but that's a big investment, and so um, it, it's a realization that that don't people don't get until they're often that far away. Yeah. Um, for you, Bian? Well, it's hard to say. I don't know. Uh, um, I, I missed my friends so bad, so, so much when we took off. And the fact that I couldn't just go for my Saturday morning run with my bestie, where we would catch up on life and process where we were as parents and as humans. I really missed that. And I think that kind of um, girlfriend time for me was, was actually the hardest part. Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting perspective. So you got some time back with family, and then you headed back down south towards the Caribbean and, and the Panama Canal. So at that point, we basically had sort of a schedule for the first time ever outside of seasonal variations, because what happened to change our plans is that our son was 18 and looking at colleges. It was time for him to make his next move. And we realized that if we followed our initial plan, which is head to the Mediterranean, he wouldn't circumnavigate with us. We would eventually do it, but he would not do it. We would not ah. do it as a family. And that became unacceptable to everyone. So we basically made a plan to finish circumnavigating. And then um, he would move on to college. And he deferred uh, going to school for a year In to order be for able to, to do that. Yeah. So he had a gap wow. year to add to his other um, nine years of gap years. And, uh, and, Came down through the Caribbean 2017, uh, was Hurricane Irma and Maria. So a terrible year in that sense. But we um, we stayed very uh, active with watching weather, dashed down south, got out of it, went west from there through the canal, which is an awesome experience to go through. Tell us so about that. We went that. north from the canal, and we crossed our track off of Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Um, and just a few months later, our son left to start his freshman year at Lewis and Clark in Oregon. Wow. What a great send-off. What, when was yeah. that that you actually, actually crossed your own track? April 7th. 2018. 2018. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Ten years and a few days from the date that we departed from Mexico from right. the South Pacific. Right. Not a bad track record. You know, it was a nice pace. Uh, it was definitely slowed down by the extra time in Australia when uh, we'd run out of money and needed to, to refill the kitty. We probably would have occupied that with uh, more island hopping, but um, the 10-year the pace to circumnavigate felt 
uh, really good, actually. And and now we're getting ready to set out again. Yeah, so the thing is, when you go and whether you cross a pond, an ocean, or the world, it doesn't really matter. You only scribe a small line. It's a fairly thin line. It's true. Like you mentioned then looking at our the map of where we've been. And I look at that and I think of the, the map of where we haven't been yet. So we set out April 1st, 2010, to go west from Mexico to cross the Pacific. And now we're 10 years later, and we're looking at April 1st, 2020, (laughs) to uh, set off to the west again. Where we go? Don't know. Don't know. Circumnavigation is not a plan. It doesn't matter one way or the other. It never was in the first place. Our plan was family time. It's just get out again and see what's out there. I love that symmetry. But I do have to ask, do you still consider Seattle home? And you're closer to Seattle than you've been at any other time on this journey. Is there a temptation to sail north? We were just up in Seattle for a week. And I have to confess that experiencing January in Seattle reminded us of all the reasons why we probably won't live there again. <laughs> not the it's time not to nice. go back. Um, but we do love it. And there's always a possibility. Um, and the ties are there with family and friends that always mm-hmm. want to pull us back. As with other places, there's family in San Francisco. We've got family in the East Coast and friends. But, um, but we like our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no temptation or no interest really in sailing north right now. We have no delusions that we're going to go forever. We have no idea how long we're going to go. It At some be... point, this will change. Yeah. I, I expect it will be grandchildren um, that, that push that change. <laughs> as <laughs> the parties how... say, as long as it's fun, right? Right, as yeah. long as it's fun. Yeah. Well, we think of it as, a th- I, I love what the parties say, but we really think of it as a three-legged stool. One of which is, Everybody wants to be here, which is kind of, you know, as long as it's fun. The other one is having our health. And we've been really fortunate to have our health. We've seen a lot of people who had cruising dreams uh, fail or fail because they didn't have their health. Um, and the last one is being able to financially string it together, which I, I don't think, you you know, as long as it's fun, it's a bit blithe when it comes to the fact that it does take money to do this. And mm-hmm. we've got to figure it out. And, and well... We're not in the same place as we were when crossing the Pacific and ended up in Australia to make money. Um, we're also not much different than that. We yeah. we we have trickle stream incomes from writing, from coaching, from sales. It's the paycheck to paycheck, as it were, and, but cruiser style. And mm-hmm. and but that, we're okay with that. It's it's good to. Um, uh, it beats you know, a commute and a desk job. It means we're experiencing the world in technicolor as a family, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah, and our mm-hmm. risk tolerance for that may change, although being still gets pretty stressed out by money. Yeah, more than anything. Yeah, but um, but we're, we're still okay so far. I think that's a wonderful note to end on, unless there's anything else that you guys want to add. I think the one thing I'd want to say is for folks who are listening and wondering about their constraints, to blow those away and say anyone can do this most of our constraints are fallacies that just need to be disproven and chances are the fears are un unvalid are, are not necessarily valid and and i want people to explore why they think it's not and find a mentor or find a friend or find someone who's been there done that to help them get through it because truly anyone just about can do this and i uh, just tack on a little bit that um it's often 
perceived that you've got to be rich to go sailing. And yes, there is that, or there's not. It's a choice in how how you um, how you go and the boats that you choose. And that um, you've got to be some crazy adventurer to go step off across the ocean. It's not about how far you go or how long you went or how much money you had in the boat that you purchased. It's that you went and you stepped outside. And, and truly, um, it's, it's not even about sailing. We worked with people that loved the idea. They were inspired by YouTubers or whatever. And it turns out, in talking about what it's really like out here, they realized that the boating part wasn't for them, but they loved the idea still of seeing the world and traveling and not, and not being on the hamster wheel. And so they, we've had people that have gone and um, traveled by RV. We've had other people that buy around-the-world plane tickets and live in different places. So there's a lot of different ways to do this thing. And the thing is have us an experience outside the mainstream and it will change who you are. It'll ruin your life in the back. Jamie, man, thank you so much. This has been inspirational for me, very informative. And if people want to find out more and read more about your story, where do they do that? The best place is just come to sailingtotem.com. And from there, there's information about our book, about our coaching service, about how to buy sales from Jamie um, and more than, gosh, I think we've got about 800 posts over the last, oh, wow, it's like 13 years I've been blogging now since we bought Totem, since before we bought Totem. But, and the other way is just to show up in La Cruz, Mexico, where we'll be for the next couple of months. <laughs> we'll be we'll we'll couple share months. tacos. Hey, hey, don't uh, tempt yeah. me. <laughs> I might Margarita come knocking on the hall. <laughs> we're, we're tempting. Yeah, you we're get here, Ben, totally. Margaritas are on us. <laughs> Thank you, guys. That wraps up this week's show. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Be safe, be well, and until next week, smooth sailing.